On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about a vote in the House of Commons today about whether or not the Chinese government, according to Canadian politicians, is and has committed a genocide against the Uyghur people in China, the Muslim people there. Uh, Michael Chong, the MP for Wellington Halton Hills, the Conservative Shadow Minister for, for Foreign Affairs, joins us to talk about that. We are also talking about whether or not, or why it is, I guess, that things seem so difficult to get done in Canada these days. Why does everything seem to get bogged down? We'll talk about that. And then Don Robertson joins us. Lots of things to get to with Don, including should we have statues and more statues and walls of fame and walks of fame and stars in the sidewalk and all the rest here in the city? Stick around. Have your say too. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The House of Commons today voted on... I don't know how else to describe it, but a loaded motion. This was a, this was a really hot button, difficult one. It was to recognize or determine that China's treatment of its ethnic Muslim Uyghur population was a genocide. And certainly stories and accounts, if you've been reading the news, not just in Canada, but around the world and reports of what has been happening in that part of the world, the reports we're getting are quite frankly, incredibly troubling and in many cases, terrifying. Well, the vote today at the House of Commons passed unanimously. 266 to zero was the vote. That was across party lines. However, notably absent today was the Prime Minister and any member of his cabinet. They decided to abstain from voting. Now, some have said this is smart politics. You've still got to work with China and try and deal with them. Others have described it as political cowardice. Which one is it? Let me bring in Michael Chong. He is the MP for Wellington Halton Hills, just up the road in Fergus and Georgetown. He is also the Conservative Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs. Mr. Chong, thank you so much for doing this today. I appreciate it. Great to be here, Scott. Uh, you knew, you had to know that this result was coming. It wasn't a surprise. We knew going into this that the cabinet was going to abstain and probably what was going to happen. But were you at all surprised that in the end they didn't change their mind? Someone from the cabinet didn't vote yes or no or something? Yes, I was surprised uh, that they abstained. In fact, I didn't hear about them abstaining from this vote until just before the vote, about an hour before the vote. Um, and so I think it, it's a, a sad reflection on a government that is unable to take a clear stand on an inter- a very important human rights issue. Uh, you are, as I, moment, I mentioned ago, you're the shadow minister for foreign affairs. Um, I, I was talking today to a Uyghur person that I know. Um, the stuff, as I mentioned, that we've heard about is horrifying internment camps and p- police showing up at doors and torture. And we've even heard reports about systemic rapes. I mean, take a moment. What's your understanding? What did you vote on today? What is your understanding of what's been happening there and why did you vote for this? Well, that's an excellent question, Scott. So... Uyghurs are a minority Muslim population in Western China. There are about 12 million Uyghurs who live in a province called Xinjiang, which is one of the Western provinces of the People's Republic of China. It borders on uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, These Uyghurs are a minority in a country of some 1.4 billion ethnic Han Chinese. Um, A number of years ago, uh, Uyghurs were... Uh, and and the majority ethnic Han Chinese were clashing over ethnic tensions. Uh, a number of terrorist attacks took place between 2009 and 2014, um, but none of those attacks 
justify what uh, the Beijing authorities did next, which is that President Xi, the president of China, decided to use the full force of China's authoritarian state to crack down on the Uyghur people. And so what they have done in the last five years or so is they have built hundreds of detention camps, essentially concentration camps, that have housed upwards of a million and a half people. Um, there are credible reports and evidence of um, systemic population control, which is a euphemistic term for mass sterilizations, forced abortions, uh, forced uh, sterilizations. There's evidence of sexual violence being uh, perpetrated by state authorities and uh, forced labor. And so the motion today uh, called on the government of Canada to officially recognize this for what it is, a genocide and to work with our allies like the United States to take action to counter and to stop this genocide from taking place. You used the phrase, and I'll, I'll ask you about it, you used the phrase concentration camp. I mean, that is as loaded a term as we could probably have when we talk about things like this. Is that your interpretation of what's happening? Is that a fair use of the word? Well, they're like concentration camps. I think a more accurate term is detention camps. Uh, we don't have accurate numbers on the numbers of Uyghurs that have been killed, uh, but there certainly have been many Uyghurs killed. Uh, the one way to put it is that this is the single largest detention of an ethnic group, single largest mass incarceration of an ethnic group since the genocide of the Holocaust uh, of the Jewish people during the Second World War. Uh, that is the conclusion of the number of human rights experts, including the former Liberal Minister of Justice, Erwin Koller. We do have to deal with China still, and their ambassadors and others have said this is antagonistic. W will voting this way antagonize China and make our dealings with them more difficult? Uh, our position is that the government's passive pattern of equivocation in its approach to China isn't working. In fact, it's just further emboldening China to continue with its belligerent behavior and continuing to threaten our citizens, our economy, and our values, that is, as it's doing when it undermines fundamental human rights in the Uyghur genocide. So we believe that democracies need to take a stronger stand on China in order to make it clear to China that this kind of behavior is not acceptable and cannot continue. So if to interpret, um, there are some who have said, look, they still have the two Michaels and this is going to make it more difficult to get them out of China. I'm assuming then are interpreting your position saying, well, we weren't getting them out of China anyway, the way things were going. So it's not like we were moving in a fast direction towards a resolution. That's right. Um, I think China, the, the, this previous approach, the current, sorry, the current approach of the government on China isn't working. That's clear. Um, China is continuing to threaten us, continuing to threaten our, our citizens and our companies. And until we take a stronger stand on China and make it clear to them that this kind of behavior is not acceptable, they're simply going to continue doing this. You know, Canada um, needs to take a look at what even smaller countries like Australia have done in taking a much stronger stand. Uh, and I think as democracies start to work more closely together on this file, I think that will make it clear to the Chinese authorities that the pattern of behavior uh, that they've conducted themselves with over the last five years simply isn't going to work going forward into the future. What 
is the benefit to Canadians by doing this? It gives, it does what, 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 what comes from this vote? Well, recognition of a genocide places obligations on countries around the world to take action to prevent the genocide from continuing and to take action to punish the perpetrators of the genocide. That's clear under the 1948 Genocide Convention. Uh, That was the first international human rights treaty signed by members of the United Nations after the Second World War. And it was the first international human rights treaty for a reason. It came after the horrors of the Holocaust, where six million Jews were killed uh, during that time. And the world came together in 1948 and said, never again will we allow that kind of thing to happen. And so we're going to pass this genocide convention, and we're going to make sure that all countries around the world adhere to it. And two of the provisions of the convention call on signatories to the agreement, of which China and Canada both are, uh, to take action to prevent genocide and to hold those perpetrating it accountable. So we're calling on the government to actively seek the relocation of next winter's Olympics. We're calling on them to join with our other allies and encourage them to also recognize this as a genocide. We're calling on the ban of products from Xinjiang region, where the Uyghurs live, uh, because we let, we believe that a lot of those products are being made with forced and slave labor. Um, so those are just some of the things that we believe the government should be working with allies to put in place as a way to stop this genocide. You do bring up, um, and it is a secondary issue, I'm sure, but the Olympics, which has been a, an object of discussion now for some time, it, it does seem that once we've declared that a country has committed or is committing a genocide, it seems rather cumbersome or awkward or impossible for us to send people over there than to attend a festival to celebrate that country and its regime. It, we, we've now put ourselves in a position, I think, where we have to reevaluate this whole idea of a boycott, do we not? Well, I, I, I think so. I think, I think it's clear that it's not possible for Canada to send athletes to an Olympics in the shadow of a genocide. I also believe that our athletes should have a chance to compete um, our athletes have worked long and hard to get to the level of Olympic competition, and they should be given that opportunity. That's why we're calling on the government to make a formal request to the International Olympic Committee to seek a relocation of the next Winter Olympics. It is, uh, it is a, a troubling and a difficult and a contra- complicated and controversial and all those words you want to put in vote today and issue. Uh, we have to let Michael Chong go. I know he has, he has a meeting with his uh, shadow cabinet coming up right now. We're keeping him late anyway. Member of Parliament for Wellington, Halton Hills, and shadow, Conservative Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs. So much appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Scott. It, uh, it is complicated, as I say, and it does raise some issues that I think are going to be very complicated for this government, which is if we're not willing to take a stand on a difficult or inconvenient vote like this, when even the backbenchers for the liberals said yes, what do we do the next time one comes along? Have we, have we given up our moral high ground? It's, I mean, these are difficult, difficult questions that even those who fully support the liberal government are going to have to say, what have, what have we given up by having the people really in power abstaining on this one, especially a party that has been so verbal and vocal arguing for human rights. This is a very, very tricky situation that it has now that this government has now put itself in unquestionably.
based on what everything we read, all the reports, is a horrible, horrible situation. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating piece in the National Post today that brought a lot of issues together into one giant Petri dish for us to be able to study all at once. From vaccines to pipelines to building dams to clean water on reserves and on and on and on, the question was raised, why can't Canada seem to get anything done these days? Everything seems to get bottled up and held back. And there's more things than that, by the way. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, we're number one in nursing home deaths. We haven't been able to figure that one out. And we're, uh, we have more pandemic debt than any other country per capita. And cities are struggling with help from the federal government or others to build transit systems that are getting bogged down. And we missed out on a UN Security Council seat. And we, we 20, even fixing the Prime Minister's house at 24 Sussex Drive. All these things, nothing seems to be easy anymore. Stephen Ledru is a political commentator. He is the guy behind the three-minute interview that you can find on YouTube. Great stuff. Uh, you can also, uh, he's also the former head of the Liberal Party of Canada. He joins us now. Stephen, as always, thanks for doing this. Always my pleasure to be on your show, Scott. Well, let's uh, let's start with the broadest part of this. Then, why is I mean, it does seem like everything is a struggle, and I I applaud the column for bringing all these issues into one place so we can see them all in front of us at once. Why is everything such a struggle these days? It's part of the the bureaucratic society that we have created. It's not just Canada. Canada, I think, is one of the worst countries in the world for lack of achievement. And we should be at the forefront because we have so much to offer. And we have such you know, wonderful people and wonderful talent and wonderful resources. Uh, we are being failed by our political leaders. But it's bigger than that. When you look around the world, um, there are countries who are just you know, marching ahead and doing things. And in North America, we are just being bogged down by bureaucracy, by political correctness, by uh, Use another word. Scared politicians, politicians without any backbone, and uh, we are just giving in to the minorities. Well, and it's not just North America, but it's sort of Western democracies, put loosely. I mean, it's Britain, it's other countries are just incapable of doing anything. And normal people, reasonable people, just look at it and shake their heads and say, you know, you guys are crazy. Uh, it's when you have. Um, in Britain, I was reading uh, just this morning, uh, you're not allowed, hospitals and, and agencies are saying, we can't use the word breastfeeding anymore because we're going to offend people who are in transition from male to female. <laughs> How stupid is that? Uh, but to, to your point, um, the Prime Minister uh, never did anything about 24 Sussex. It was falling apart. It is falling apart. And um, we have a bunch of bureaucrats saying it's going to cost $100 million to rebuild it. Well, that's total crap. You know, I, I, I know developers say, give me $10 million, I'll make that place a palace. Uh, but we are run by bureaucracies, and we don't have the politicians' guts to, uh, to say, um, you know, enough is enough. But and, the, uh, the flip side... But Stephen, the flip side of this, and I don't disagree with what you're saying. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. The flip side is we don't want to then, I don't think, look at the authoritarian regimes that can do whatever they want and make stuff happen fast and say, yeah, you know what, that, that over there, that's pretty enticing. We don't, we don't want to look at them enviously. We don't want anything that they offer 
yet they can get stuff done, not the way we want to get it done, but they can get stuff done. Oh, oh you're, you're, Scott, you're absolutely right. If you look at China and what, and what it does as far as, you know, you know, high-speed trains, as far as subways, uh, I mean, we don't want to run roughshod over, you know, people's rights. Um, and we don't want to have an authoritarian regime like that. Singapore, for instance, oh, came from a country of, of zero wealth in the early 1960s, so that was 70 years ago. They have more subways um, than Toronto will ever have, uh, and they do respect rights. So there is a happy medium there. And, uh, and you and I have been around long enough to know, Scott, and most of your listeners have been around too, to say you go from one side to another side, there's the, you know, the, the needle goes the wrong way sometimes. The needle, as far as effectiveness, is way, way, way off the range in Canada these days. And we don't have to pay attention to every one in a million persons who's going to object to something. There are going to be some people who just object to everything. And you have to have rational leaders, Scott, and thinking leaders who say, who, who consider that and say, yep, yep, you, I hear you, but you happen to be in the big minority or, they, or, or you're just completely wrong and we're going to move ahead. And move ahead we must, except for our leaders are saying we aren't going to move ahead unless it's within their own views of what's politically correct. And that's one Justin Trudeau who seems very able to... Uh, to uh, beat up the West, beat up the East, um, give hundreds of millions to his friends in Quebec, and leave the rest of the country panting. There is a, There was a time when we were able to do things. We built a railroad from coast to coast. I can't possibly imagine that we could do something like that today. It would just get so bogged down. And I think you're really on to something here. Um, and that is, you say, it's not, just a, it's not just a government issue. It's not just a one party, a particular party issue. It's bureaucracy for sure, but we also seem to have created a system, for better or for worse, certainly better than the authoritarian regime system by a million miles, but a system in which we've decided that it's a system in which I'm entitled to have a country that I want. And if you do something or want to do something that's counter to what I think my country should be like, I'm within my rights to try and stop you from doing that. Well, you, if that's the case, nothing can ever get done because we're never all going to agree on anything. You're absolutely right. We never have unanimity, but we do have the vast majority. And what has happened, as I was saying earlier, I think that, I think that we're, we're out of balance. We're out of whack. And Canadians have been very complacent about that. And they're becoming increasingly less complacent. And I think that is good. I think it's good to, 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 to read in the National Post that article and to, to listen to you on radio and to say, you know what, we got to do something about this and we need new political leadership. And uh, I think that, uh, I think it is starting to happen because people are saying we're falling behind. And part of it is going to be as a result of the pandemic, Scott, the government's reaction to it. And, and, and you know, you drive around these days and you see businesses open everywhere, except for small businesses who are following the law and have been closed down by, um, by the province. Yes, but even, but Stephen, your, your point though about different political leadership, and there may be something to that, but I, even if we elected a completely different party and let's say the conservatives got in federally and said, you know what, we're going to ram through a pipeline. You know what, we're, we're, we believe in this and we're going to make it happen. You would immediately have protesters getting in the way and, you know, you can't, depending on who the protesters are or where they are or, or how they're protesting, it becomes very complicated to remove them. We've seen that in different places. And so you end up 
you may not be any further ahead. I mean, you still couldn't make it happen. But they must because- be removed. Scott, they must be removed. Many of the protesters we have seen over the last few years in, in B.C. and Alberta over the pipelines are funded by American sources, some American sources which do not want Canadian oil going anywhere because they are run by American oil. It's competition. Others by, by American forces who just are, are looney tunes, who don't want to have any uh, gas or oil. And, and some of those protesters are professional protesters. And sometimes, and, and you know, he and I ended up, well, we're on good terms now, but we ended up on bad terms when I had to force him out of office, Mr. Kretchen. But it was 25 years ago, Scott, <laughs> there was a Shawinigan handshake where he gave the protester uh, a little bit of what for with his, uh, yep. with his left hand. 25 uh, years ago today or yesterday, but this week. Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a memorable time. And yet, as it came out afterwards, that protester was a paid protester. And, you know, we, we, you and I, Canadians, and particularly the media, pay too much attention to protesters, and we do it, not you and I, sorry on that one, but a lot of media does it without any question. They don't behind it and say, well, who are these people, and who's funding them, and what are they really after? And half the time, they are illegitimate. So we've been just giving in to this baloney, and we've got to stop doing it. If there are real legitimate concerns then let our political leadership address it, and we should all hear it, and judge whether, in fact, they're full of baloney or, or not. But we've got to, and if they are full of baloney, move on. Let's just get this thing going. If they do have some legitimate concerns, let's accommodate them and move on. But, I mean, this years and years of study, this stuff has got to stop, and a lot of it's also driven by lawyers. But we also see, Stephen, and we're not there yet, thankfully, in Canada for the most part, but we see down in the States that now we will have, if, if you know, if protests, if, if we're not happy with the governing party or we're not happy with what's going on, we will take to the streets and there can even be violence on either side of the political aisle, which, you know, is a whole, again, I, I, I know this has happened in the past, the Boston Tea Party, if you want to go back that far. Um, but, you know, it's something that is certainly newer, at least becoming more prevalent, that makes it much more difficult for any political party to get something past the opponents to whatever it is that you're, they're opposing. Violence has to be stopped. And you don't stop violence with lying down and just uh, letting them run over you or kill you. Uh, when you have protesters who are burning down buildings, who are shooting people, who are shooting cops, um, then they must be stopped. And they aren't going to be stopped by saying, please, please uh, stop this. Sometimes force has to be used. And, and because we have tolerated, we have become so so tolerant of the intolerant, the people who are sitting out there saying, don't do this, that we are being held captive. We are being subjected to it, which is why things aren't getting done. And we guys just stand up for ourselves and say, you know, enough is enough. The pendulum has gone too far to the, to the wrong side of things, I think, Scott. And I think we're seeing that because people are finally saying, enough of this crap. You know, we just want some action. We want real action because we are becoming... A, a have-not country. Stephen, I, I'm already over my time, oh, but sorry. I'm going to give you 10 more seconds with one more thing I want to know about, because you've been in politics a long, long time. There was a time when opposition parties didn't just oppose for the sake of opposing, but if they saw something good, they said that's for the betterment of the country and we'll do it. Where has that gone? Well, the problem is that there have been very few parties in government or in power who are saying things that are for the good of the country. <laughs> so the opposition is not saying we agree with you. We've had some very bad governance. 
Stephen LeDrew, you can again find him. Uh, look for the three-minute interview on YouTube. Lots and lots of people are doing that right now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, who is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and of ComChoice Realty. And Dundas is citizen of the year a number of years ago, and we are lobbying hard to make it this year again. Since, I mean, he should win anyway, but with nobody doing anything right now, the bar has been set even lower. So it's almost even more of a sure thing that he can be the 2021 citizen of the year. How are you, sir? Good. I was better before you said I got a better chance because the bar set so low, but anyway, carry on. Well, no, I've, the bar was set very high before. I'm just saying you're going to win it anyway, but now because, yeah. you know, there's even more of an opportunity. It's, it's almost, a, it's almost locked in. I mean, if I don't know if Vegas casinos have betting odds on Dundas's citizen of the year voting, but if they do put some money down on Dawn right now, that would be my suggestion. Yeah, I wouldn't put all the money you have down, but I like the way you're thinking. <laughs> we we will see. I don't know who we speak to. I don't even know who handles the voting for that, or if it's um just a number of Dundasians who sit around having a few cocktails and throwing out a name here or there. I have no idea how it works, but we'll see what we can do. I'm sure that must have happened to happen the first time. <laughs> I don't know if they still do it that way. You got to think there was some liquid uh, encouragement involved in that deal. Did you, why did you provide some? No, I said no when they said they were going to nominate me. <laughs> I did. They came in, uh, two people came and saw me, we're going to do this. So I, you, no, you're not, because I'm not going to accept it. Two weeks later, they come in and said, no, nope, you're in, we're going to do it. And three weeks later, um, there were some other nominees that dropped out. So I guess it was pretty easy. <laughs> They, it's not like in, in Hollywood walk of fame where the person has to pay $50,000 for the star, right? You don't have to, this is not a thing where you have to pay to win. No, I didn't buy it. No, I didn't buy it. That's good. They should have a Dundas walk of fame with stars in the sidewalks. That'd be cool. There'd be a few. Yeah, there, well, uh, there'd be lots of them, like lots of them that I can tell you off the top of my head that are in Dundas Sports Hall of Fame, but there's mm-hmm. all kinds of uh, well-established industrialists that were in town. Uh, William Osler has a school name, and there's a park, too. And I'm yep. embarrassed to tell you, I don't know the history, but I'm sure it's not because he was never in town, and he probably lived there. And so there's there's uh, uh, um Dave Thomas and Ian Thomas went to Dundas District yes. High School. So yeah, Great Meyer from the Great Meyer Arena. He was the guy behind the HSR yeah. once upon a time, and and uh, Collins from the Collins Pub that you uh, that yeah. you know well. Uh, he was a was that not from the baseball playing family at one time? He he is yes. He's being inducted into the. Uh, I, I hope I've got this uh, monkeyed up, but I believe he's going into the Dundas Sports Hall of Fame with Mackenzie Hughes because. They sent the same package that would put him into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. So yes, yeah, there were a bunch. That, that's one thing that is uh, that a lot of people don't know about that, that many of the well, many a number of the early early Canadian baseball players who played in the major leagues, and we're talking back in the eighteen hundreds. There were three or four or five of them that came from Dundas, which is weird that that would be where. But yes, that's a uh, there's a, there's a history there. I, I look, I, I, there was a piece in the spec uh, at the spec.com today. And I have, look, I've lobbied for this Don, as you know, for a long, long time that the city of Hamilton, Dundas, Hamilton, both together 
have done a poor job over the years. They've at moments done better, but they've done a poor job honoring the greats from this city. And somebody has proposed, there's a, a columnist, um, I'll find the name here to make sure I get and give the credit, um, but that we should have a statue of Lincoln Alexander downtown Hamilton, which I agree with a thousand percent, a thousand percent. How could it, Dermot P. Nolan is the, the author. Go look that one up. How, who could possibly take issue with Lincoln Alexander being honored in Hamilton again? I, I, I don't think anyway. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to jump on the bandwagon you've been on for far too long. And that is the uh, Russ Jackson park up on the mountain. Still waiting. And, uh, I'm, uh, um, I've made it a bit of a project of mine to start this week because Sue's, uh, my wife works with Russ Jackson's daughter and I've come to learn how important that is to him and his which family. he'd never say, which he'll never say, but you're right. It is important to him and it should be important to him that his own city would recognize him. It should be important. So I'm, and I don't have any more drag in the city of Hamilton than you do, but there are some phone calls that I've committed myself to make to say, this should happen this weekend. And so you've done some yeoman's uh, work on that project, and I'm going to jump on your bandwagon and say, we got to, you know, let's do this. This is, because he has great health, he walks he hikes and but um we're not all going to walk and hike till we're 95 or 104 and at this rate it's getting too slow so let's pick it up anyway let me tell you about the russ jackson park don the the russ jackson park so we started pushing for it five or six years ago four years ago the city said they were going to name a park after him four years ago and it still has not been named. How in the world can naming a park? Now I know we had COVID, but how in the world it can possibly take four years? I, I when when Johnny Bauer at one point in Toronto, they decided to name a street after Johnny Bauer, and within a week that street was named after him. When Dave Anderchuk won the Stanley Cup, they decided within about two weeks to name the arena up on the mountain after Dave Anderchuk because he was going to bring the cup to town and everybody wanted to be with the, get a picture of the cup and it would be a great opportunity. It took forever to get a rink named after Harry Howell. It took forever to get something named after Bill Friday. Finally was. It's just, it's too slow. And so, you know, whether it's in, in, in Dundas, when I, you know, say about the walk of faith, we got to do way better in this city about honoring it. And Lincoln Alexander, it's a perfect one. There could be nobody that could possibly take issue with Lincoln Alexander. We'll see. The other thing we might get at this week too is starting a, a Dundas Walk of Fame for uh, famous Dundas people. I'll make a note. Today it was too busy, but later yep. in the week looks better. So I'll have some spare time to try and push people along to do some meaningful things to honor people that do wonderful things for our community. Uh, far too often it's overlooked, and you're right. And you can blame COVID on the Russ Jackson Park. You said four years ago. I. My memory serves me right. COVID hasn't been around a year yet. Seems like nope. it's a hundred years, but hasn't been around a year yet. Anyway, Ju- June June two thousand seventeen was when the city said they were going to do something for him. So we're we're coming up on four years, and and it was a couple of years before that 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 things were being suggested. So 
You know, and, and look, and some people think, well, Radley, you're only interested in, or Don, you're only interested in sports people. No, no, we just talked about Lincoln Alexander. I, I, I think we should be having something in this city for Martin Short and for Eugene Levy and for, you know, pick your person here. Um, th- there's a, a our, our friend Cadillac Bill, who people may know from Cable 14 and other places, he has long been pitching that we should have something about Florence Lawrence, who very few people know about, but she was the first ever known female Hollywood movie star, not just from Hamilton ever. She was the first woman to get her name on the film as a, as a named movie star. She was from Hamilton. How, how have we missed that one all this time? I mean, it goes on and on. We, we should be able to do better with this. Well, it's not all about athletes either. I brought up, uh, um, Ian, Ian and Dave Thomas. And absolutely. Absolutely. There's, uh, the list goes on and on sports for you and I is easy, but reality is easy for us too because we get it we we get it and we got to get more people to get it so. you know i was thinking the other day when i when i or not the other day i was thinking maybe a day or so ago that one of the things that we could do that would be super easy don wouldn't even require permanence is and i don't know where the idea came from we could beam with a projector just on the wall of city hall. That is that big open white wall. So when you're driving along main street, you could see it. We could just beam up photos on there for 20 seconds or a minute at a time of famous Hamiltonians that change all day long or all evening long, right? No, no effort, no effort. And you could do that. And there's something you could do to honor Hamiltonians, but it shouldn't be you and me and other people always who are thinking of this. It should be, some of this stuff should be coming from city hall and from people there who go, how are we going to honor the people who really have brought great acclaim to this city? Anyway, let's move along. I, I, I will provide some defense for the people at city hall, including mostly the politicians. They have so much stuff thrown at them on a regular basis. I'm it, not talking about hard. politicians. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. I'm not talking about politics. I'm not, I'm not talking about politicians. I mean, if one of them wants to come up with the idea, great. Um, uh, you know, I, I, look, there are, there are lots of people that work for this city. Let's put it that way. And, um, best I can tell, very few of them have been out of work during COVID, even though some of them have not been able to do their jobs and have been getting paid while they've been at home. We'll leave it there. Um, the outdoor game. Uh, to switch to something a little more sporty, the outdoor games, they had two in Lake, excuse me, in Lake Tahoe on the weekend. Um, very beautiful. The vistas with the lake in the background and the mountains and everything else, lovely on the golf course, no fans because you can't have fans. It all looked wonderful, Don, except for the fact that the ice was a, a mess during the day. And then by nighttime, you couldn't really see the view. Have you, have you, like, I've got the point now where I've had more than enough of the outdoor games. I think they've just completely beaten this thing into the ground. Are you, are you still excited about outdoor games or are you, have you seen it and done it and on we go to normal life again? Well, it's, it's, uh, I'm done with it. Um, unless they can start doing it in a meaningful way and having it in Lake Tahoe. Um, with no fans is to me, you know, me, I go back to the money. They must've had big sponsors for the outdoor games and to not hold them would have been very expensive for the NHL. So they do that and they fulfill the commitment, but it goes back to integrity to me all the time. 
Like you can, you, everything can be about money until it, until it jeopardizes your integrity. Because when you have no integrity, you have nothing. And I think it's a real stretch on the integrity to hold an outdoor game. You and I have talked before. I was at um, the First Heritage Classic in Edmonton um, and sat 15 feet from Gary Bettman, who was there and couldn't wait to get out because he was frozen because it was a bit chilly. That was pretty cool. You know, you got the Habs there. You had the alumni that Gretzky played in. That was very, very special. You take you take that memory, which was a number of years ago, and then Sue's for Christmas got me Toronto, Detroit at Michigan Stadium. There's 103,000 seats. That was kind of cool, but it wasn't the it wasn't the Heritage game. But then you pop one down during a pandemic in Lake Tahoe. Really? Where's the bar now? Talking about the bar for Citizen of the Year in Dundas. Where's the bar now? I mean, they may as well have one in, on Lake Joe in Dundas and put some bleachers up and hold it outdoors on a pond. Well, they want to have one in Lake no, Louise. No. That was apparently the, the initial thing, but they couldn't cross the border or something, or there were some other reasons that they couldn't do it. But, um, you know, look, I... I get the visuals and everything, but it's just, to me, it's, 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 we've seen it now. We've, I just don't, the outdoor games just don't do anything for me now. And they might have, Don, they might have, had they not done so many of them that they became commonplace. That's, that to me is the problem. The, the NHL became greedy with this and found after the one in Buffalo, especially, with Sidney Crosby and the snowflakes and everything else. Oh, that was beautiful. Well, if one of them was beautiful, let's have 12. Well, no, that's, that's how you normalize and make it commonplace and no longer special so that, you know, look at any kid in the world, if you take them for ice cream once in a while, will think it's the greatest thing in the world. If you take a kid for ice cream every single day, they'll still eat it, but it won't be that special. They'll still like it but it's not something they're going to wait all week to get their hands on. Maybe that's a bad example, but we just, we overdid it. We just, it was so overdone that they, they're not special anymore to me. Well, an old, uh, an old referee buddy who's passed on Larry Mordu now was a great hunter and, you know, um, um, his, his great term was that, that hog don't, or that dog don't hunt anymore. And, you know, so if the dog doesn't hunt anymore, don't take him hunting. And don't try and find something that's not there. So I know it's interesting. I'm not sure two or three a year. I'm, I'm pretty sure two in one day with no fans is a tougher sell. You know, make them special. And when you can make them special, something significant, whether it's the Boston Bruins 75th anniversary in the National Hockey League and you want to do something, okay, that's pretty cool. Well, my understanding is the NHL buy the game and then pay the home team. And then they, they, they take advantage of whatever else they can sell around it, which is good for them. It doesn't cost the home team anything. You know, the NHL puts up the, the uh, ice surface and the boards and markets the event. But it, you better try and figure out how to make it special again. All leagues have struggled with all-star games, trying to have them have some more significance than they do rather than 
you know, just to say you've got an all-star game, it's, it's a bit of a struggle for some of them, but if they can't make it special, then it's going to be a difficult sell. Uh, I watched it for three minutes. What little bit I could, because when it got delayed on Saturday, then I couldn't even find it on Saturday night when they were supposed to play at midnight. And by that point, I was probably not going to be watching too much anyway, but I watched for about two minutes, three minutes, saw the view once, and that was more than enough. And on we go. That's, uh, and that's unfortunate because as I say, once upon a time, they had a really good thing and I don't know how they're going to, I don't know how they do what you just said. I don't know what they do now to make it special. I don't know how you trick it up or whatever else to take it back to that point when it's special, other than maybe saying we're putting this in mothballs for the next 10 years and we'll come back in a decade with another one. But there's no way they're doing that because this is their one big thing. But I I think if it's the 75th anniversary of the Bruins, like I'd said, or, you know, the 90th anniversary of the uh, New York Rangers, if there's a special reason for it, go ahead, but don't make it up anymore. Sorry. No, uh, let's have roller hockey. (laughs) Right? Or Bandy. Sure. Have you ever seen Bandy? They, it's hockey on a rink the size of the full football field. Let's do that. Let's like, like let's really make it crazy. That now that would I that I would watch for the first time. Maybe not for the whole thing, or maybe not for a second time. But sure, I'd watch that. But or or let's go back and have one game that was played nineteen seventy three Philadelphia Flyers Boston Bruins style, guaranteed a fight every five minutes. That would draw ratings too. I don't think they're going to do that. Yes. Yes, I would. Don, I want to get on to something else, but just before I do, there was news this weekend that Mike Babcock, former Leaf coach, is going to be taking over at the University of Saskatchewan as hockey coach there on a voluntary position. This year, Mike Babcock absolutely, in the time he was with Toronto, refused to play Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews together. Has this year with what those two guys have done together and how unbelievably well they've played, have they made a mockery of Mike Babcock's stubbornness? I would have to think if you took a bit of a poll that it would certainly lean that way. Um, He wouldn't do it. I think he tried to find balance and I think he wanted to do it his way. And, and, uh, Sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, Tortorella seems to be able to get away with it. It's either my way or the highway. And uh, But I think his shelf life, you know, he's only going to be able to pull it off one or two more times. But, yeah, I think his stubbornness to put the two most talented guys they have together um, backfired on him. And the results seemingly speak for themselves because they've had great success, and – the rest of the time, you figure the rest of it out, and the Leafs are figuring the rest of it out as well. So, yeah, I would have to think that's the case. And he's volunteering, I'm sure, yep. because anything he earns somewhere else, the Leafs don't have to pay. So, uh, I'll I'll coach for them for free. So I'm sure, that's part of the contract. Oh, I'm sure. Sh- well, I'm sure. I'm sure. All right, the NHL standings. I don't know how closely you've looked. I don't know how close anyone has looked, quite honestly, because uh, we only really pay attention to what's going on in the Canadian division right now. At least most people do. I've I've talked to a couple of people and asked about other teams, and no one has a clue how other teams in the States are doing. We're just not watching. But here's the thing. Don, if you look at 
take this year's standings and put them back in the way they usually were for the last number of years. And four of the Leafs' top 10 teams, and until like last week, it was four of the top five, but four of the top 10 teams in the league and five of the top 11 are in the Atlantic division, which is the Leafs' division. And that means that had this been a normal year, you've got some divisions that are awful and you've got all the powerhouses or a whole bunch of them loaded up in one division. I know they're going to get away with it this year because you've got the way it's spread out, but should this be a moment for the NHL to look at this and say, this is why we should re redo our playoffs again so that you have one versus eight or even one versus 16 if you want, but so that you don't have to just stay within your division and have the powerhouse teams beat up on each other and some sap team make it through from the other side. To me, this is the the moment when you go, this is clearly the, the potential here, and it's not even potential anymore, is clearly here for this to be not working. There should be a reward for being a great team. Not that you have to play another great team right off the bat in the playoffs. And it's been that way now for a number of years. This year, it's just driving it home. Well, it it it, uh, it it draws a couple things to point. It it draws why Toronto, Bus, Boston, and Tampa have the records they do because they're always playing against top quality opponents, right? So the Leafs in the past, well, I think they're better this year than they've been in the last year or a number of years. I think they're far better. I don't think Boston's a lot different, and I don't think Tampa Bay's a lot different. I think the Leafs would have done better. But the, the, the truth of the matter is none of those have a team. None of those teams traditionally have a stellar record, to your point, because of who they play. And I don't think there's any more evidence than what you're giving to say, why are we having four, let's go back to last week, four of the top five teams' records in the National Hockey League playing in one division – and pounding two of them out right off the bat. Like if those four teams in, in, in that division should end up and should have a path to end up in the semifinals for the Stanley Cup, then so be it. Let that happen. Because in the old days, you know, there, there's always been, it's always a big cycle, right? That, well, look at that division. Those guys beat everybody outside their own division. So it does move around a little bit. Like Sure it does. Uh, Pitt's. Pittsburgh aren't as strong as they were, but looking at today's thing, remember when the Jays were always in the East and what an accomplishment it was to win the East because that meant you had to beat the Yankees and, and the Red Sox on a regular basis and oftentimes Baltimore. So when you got out of there, like the top four teams in that league likely could have won a division or, or uh, yeah, their division if they were in any other league or any other division in Major League Baseball. So I think you have to adapt. I mean, I think you're right. If you truly want the best teams to be there, then give them an opportunity to get there together. You raised two points. One of them is during the regular season, you play more teams in your division. So clearly the Leafs end up playing a whole lot more, and not just the Leafs. I mean, you can talk about the Florida Panthers, Tampa Bay, Boston, Montreal, all those teams have to play really good teams, which means that their record theoretically is depressed which hurts their chances in the playoffs. Second of all, if you're in the playoffs, I know everybody says, well, you got to, you know, you got to beat everybody in order to win. That's true. 
but there are ways that there are paths to the Stanley cup that are far easier than other paths. And you can say, yeah, you know what? Look at what Tampa did last year. That's true. Uh, and they were able to succeed at that, but you know what? Their path to come out of that was way harder than other places. I, I, I've always been a proponent. I loved it when it was one versus 16 back in the day, the 16 top teams get in one plays 16. You get a, you get a real benefit to finishing first or finishing second or finishing third. Now, when they go back next year, assuming they do to the old divisions, I'm not sure that the Leafs, the Lightning, the Canadians, the Panthers, Ottawa will probably be somewhat better. Buffalo should still be better than they are. I don't know why they aren't. Uh, Boston, it's tough. It's going to be super tough for any of them to even make the playoffs, let alone win in the playoffs. It, to me, it's yeah, a, to I, me this is it's stupid. The travel thing is. Uh... I think it's a non-issue, or certainly not. It's not a non-issue, but it's a far less significant issue than it ever was. I've had the opportunity to fly on a charter with an NHL team, and I'm telling you, if if you think that, if you think flying like that is a huge obstacle, you're wrong. I mean, the seats they get, I mean, they're like huge lazy boy recliners. I mean, it's it's so top shelf that that shouldn't impede or have anything to do with the decision that we can't move time zones. And now the rivalries are all mixed up, right? Because uh, next year, to your point, would be a great year to do it because Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton are now in the same division as the Leafs, um, Ottawa. So your rivalries have kind of gone away. What better time to say, you know, the top team plays the 16th team. You can say that's unfair. But I can harken back not that many years ago when, um, oh, who won the Stanley? Carol, so, uh, Car- the Carolina would not have made the playoffs in two divisions, but they were, they were uh, the top team in their division and got home ice advantage. Now, how does that make any sense? They wouldn't have made the playoffs in other divisions, but they were leading in their division. It's, uh, this is to me, as I say, to me, it's just a moment to look at this thing and say, does this make sense? And and anyone who says, well, you know what, people around here are just complaining because they're Leaf fans and this is bad for the Leafs. Well, that may be the case, but it was not that long ago that out West with the Sharks and with the uh, Ducks and with the Kings, it was brutal out there. And then you had uh, Colorado mixed in and Vancouver when they were playing well. And, you know, it, it does rotate around. It's not always going to be the same division, but Don, for some reason, it often seems to be that there are loaded divisions and you should not be, in my mind, you shouldn't be penalized because you're in a loaded division. If you're a good team, you should make the playoffs. And if you're a really good team and you make the playoffs, you shouldn't again be penalized with a lower ranking just because there's another team in your division that happens to be a star. Well, there's a couple reasons for that, to not get your your premier matchups in the Stanley Cup final, Scott, because if you look at Tampa Bay, Boston, uh, I forgot about Florida because I never assumed they're any good, but they are, and the Leafs, they have to pound the snot out of each other for two rounds just to get out, right? Like it's no cakewalk, nor would one versus 16, but there shouldn't be a punishment just to get out of your own division 
because you're in the strongest division in the National Hockey League, you're going to have, you're susceptible to more injuries, more fatigue and everything else because it's such a grind just to get out. And here you got Carolina playing somebody going, this is pretty sweet. Right? I, you know, it's, I don't know why. If they call me, I'll, I'll get that straightened out for you. Excellent. Excellent. While you're working on the, uh, on the star walk of fame, you can sort that out too. How in the world are NHL awards going to work or be voted on or be credible or be accurate or anything this year? Because most of the people, certainly up here, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, now I know we don't vote on it, the, the media do, who cover the game all the time, but most of the people watching the Canadian teams aren't watching any of the American games. Most of the people watching the American games aren't watching any of the Canadian games. How do you possibly vote on who's the MVP? And you don't have any crossover teams. Like it's all within your own division. How is this going to work? Well, it's the media that vote on it, right? Yeah. Well, but who's been better? Like they usually who's, do. No, but who's better? Is, is, is Austin Matthews having a better year right now than Nathan McKinnon? We have absolutely no way of knowing because we have no common opponents. Uh, for a comment, I don't have the answer. And usually I'm pretty good at having answers, but I, I don't know. I think the, the other issue is how do you really put a lot of credence in whatever has been decided on and how they have voted? Because traditionally, the West Coast teams have far less exposure than the East Coast League teams. Yep. So some of it's you know, there's been far too much guessing involved to start with. They're just going to have to ramp up their guessing machine because I don't think it's ever been foolproof by foolproof by any stretch of the imagination. But this year would be more tricky. You're right. I don't know how they do it, and I don't think they can come up with a MVP of each division because they only have one trophy for it. So I don't know how they'll figure it out. But if they use the same logic as they did having an outdoor, two outdoor games in Lake Tahoe, they'll try and come up with some. Oh, there, there's going to be a vote and it's going to be, you know, very few people are going to be happy. I mean, I suppose if Austin Matthews is named Hart Trophy winner as MVP or something, people around here will say that's terrific. But if Nathan McKinnon wins it, people up here are going to say, well, they weren't watching. And as I say, I don't even know how you have awards this year. And they're already, people are already talking about it. They're, you know, who's the quarter pole leader for MVP or whatever else. I, I have no idea. I could not tell you, Don. I know from looking at the standings, which teams are doing reasonably well, but I couldn't tell you if the, I mean, Vegas is a team that is doing all right and they look like they're pretty good. Could I tell you with any certainty how Vegas would do if they played against the Leafs or vice versa? Nope, no idea. No idea. Because we have nothing common, no common opponents, no other teams they've played against. Vegas might beat the Leafs by eight goals for all we know, or vice versa. It's impossible when you have no common opponents to be able to compare anything. Yeah, the benchmark is, uh, it, it's changed significantly, but it's always been skewed because if you get a great team, when I use Carolina as an example for winning their division. They were not a juggernaut in the National Hockey League that that year. They were just the best in a very weak division. So if a couple of their guys were up near the top of the NHL scoring, do you not think that some balance would have taken place and said, you know, here's who they're playing against, and everybody beats those teams like a rented mule, right? So 
Does that make their uh, contributions less significant? There's always had to be some balance, but never anything like this. We could have, I mean, theoretically, and we don't know the answer, and I don't believe this to be the case, but uh, Ottawa right now is by far the worst team in the league or seems to be. But if Ottawa played someone from another division, do we know that Ottawa gets pounded by a good team or do we think that Ottawa might be competitive with them? This is why, you know, I, I think they would still get pounded because I think they're just that weak a team right now, unless they play Toronto or Montreal, who they always seem to give a good game to. But anyway, I, I just, I find it so interesting that when it comes to, we're already hearing about this, about who's ahead, who's behind, who's going to win, who's in contention for votes, for awards. There's no way to give out a proper award this year. There just isn't. So, so, so probably just give it to Sidney Crosby or someone and just say, this is a lifetime achievement award <laughs> and, and on you go. And we'll just say, we're not going to do it this year, but they will, they will, they will. Because one thing they love as any entertainment or sports leagues, like is controversy and discussion. So they'll do it and they'll be happy with the fact that people will be screaming and yelling, but I don't know there'll be any credibility to it. No, I, I, I can't, I have trouble disagreeing with your assessment. Don Robertson, we, uh, I'll let you go. We always love having you on here. Thanks for doing this. I'll let you get working on the, uh, the Dundas walk of fame and see if you can work on getting those stars implanted into the sidewalk along the main street there. And, um, you know, see if, uh, it'd be a lovely thing, be a very lovely thing, you know, and I'm sure you'll find enough people to do it for. So I, I look forward to your discussion next week when you tell us it's in place. I'll provide an update. It may not be finalized, but I'll give you an update next week. Look, looking forward to it. Thanks as always for doing this. All right, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.